This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Effective today, Ontario tenants will now have more protection when it comes to eviction. Uh, This has been, in some people's minds, a very contentious issue. Landlords, when they want to end a tenancy to have family members move in, must provide compensation now. These were announced by the minister in charge uh, of this just uh, a couple of uh, hours ago. Peter Millicent, of course, made the announcement. Uh, Getting some reaction to this, yeah, let's bring uh, Aaron Pathak into this, president of the Hamilton District Apartment Association, who obviously are going to be impacted by this. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you. It's good to be on. Uh, you knew these were coming. The minister, and for that matter, the premier, said that they were going to do something about uh, tenants and, and tenants' rights and things of this nature. Uh, did did your association and, and like associations, like-minded associations, Aaron, have any input into this? We've had very little input. Uh, like we appeared at the committee stages uh, on the fair housing uh, bill, but uh, we didn't really feel we were listened to, uh, really. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's being, I was going to say, recommended. I mean, it's a, pro, it's a you know majority government, so it's going to happen. I guess that's the fait accompli element to this whole thing right now. But there are a number of things here that I would think would be uh, somewhat concerning to you. Yeah, well, to my mind, they're dealing with uh, symptoms but not the problem. Um, firstly, this only applies to sort of houses, condos, the secondary market. It doesn't apply to the high-rise apartment buildings, because there people are not being evicted for the landlord's own use or family to use. Mm -hmm. So it's a relatively small portion of the market that is affected. And uh, realistically, most of the new rental housing, I say new, but most of the rental housing supply that's come in the last 30 years has been in that sector of the market because apartment buildings are just not being built. So... Um, this, uh, the problem, the real problem is insufficient supply. There isn't enough rental housing being built. There hasn't been enough rental housing built in the last 30 odd years. So the problem is there's not enough units. So people have rented out houses, basement units, and a lot of the new condos. And, uh, it's, it's a, you know, the effect of bad policy over the last 30-odd years. So I can understand tenants who have to move on relatively short notice, but this will discourage more investment in the industry and will only make the supply situation worse. Well, what kind of an impact is this going to have on landlords? I, I understand the tenants, and, and there's, you know, there's some concerns here. I get that. And, yeah. and, and I know that we've heard some stories. I don't know how widespread it is, some stories of, of tenants that just take off and, and landlords are kind of left high and dry. But let's, let's talk about what's being presented right now and how it's going to impact those that have made that investment and, and in some cases purchased properties and in some cases renovated them uh, to make them ready for this. Well, yes, I mean, it's going to reduce the people who want to invest in this industry. If you've already got a house or a condo that you got rented out, if you want to move in or your family wants to move in, you're going to take a financial hit of one month's rent. Um, There always was protection against misuse of this by landlords, and I believe the uh, current maximum fine is $25,000 if you misuse this way of evicting a tenant. And apparently that hasn't changed. Yeah, so... There's a high penalty, so I don't think there's as much happening as people have made out. Obviously, it does happen. You know, people break the law every day on something or another. But it's not a huge issue from that point of view. But I understand both points. But the issue is that you're 
harming tomorrow's renters to give today's renters a bit of a help. So the government needs to find long-term solutions to bring large amounts of rental housing, purpose-built rental housing, apartment buildings, uh, to have them built. That is what's needed, not this tinkering around and trying to sort of put a bandage on a wound. It doesn't really solve the issue and only makes the issue worse for tomorrow's renters. Everything the government's done to try and help renters today makes the problem worse for renters of tomorrow. Well, and we've had those discussions over the last number of years, you and I, on this program, Aaron, and and it has to do with uh, conversions, first of all, in some residential areas. Uh, And there's always pushback from some of the other residents about having these sorts of things in there because of, well, I think it's a stereotype about people who rent, uh, and they don't want those kind of people in their neighborhood. And and that's an ongoing problem I know you've had, uh, those that try to do conversions. But there's another element to this that that I I find intriguing. And in this conversation, we seem to be talking an awful lot about people that are, for instance, you know, buying a house and maybe turning it into rental properties and doing that sort of thing. But there was a time a number of years ago uh, where... uh, where what would happen was landlords would actually convert uh, rental units, apartment buildings, into condos. And and obviously there was a concern there about tenants who didn't necessarily want to live in a condo. They wanted a rental property. And there was a concern about compensation. But I don't hear that happening much anymore. No, I don't think there's a big conversion uh, right now from rental to condos. So it's not really... um on anybody's forefront and on anybody's mind right away. So, you know, that sort of ebbed and uh, gone away. This is a little bit of a different issue. But again, the issue is there aren't enough apartment buildings being built or purpose-built apartments built, which is why tenants are forced to rent in houses, in basement apartments, in condos. Tenants don't have enough choice because of the shortage of supply. Well, listen, this this sounds very, very similar to the conversation I had with Tim Hudak, who's now the uh, the head of the Realtors Association of Ontario, uh, when we talked about the housing boom that had gone on. Now, it's slowed down a little bit, uh, but we're told that that may just be short-lived. But Tim and others have said that the basic problem here was not foreign buyers coming in here, uh, it was not speculators, it was that there isn't enough stock. And the government doesn't seem to understand that. In other words, they're, they're as doing exactly what you just suggested with the housing market. Now they're doing it with the rental market. They're treating the symptoms, and they're not doing anything about the malaise. Yeah, precisely. If the process wasn't so long, first, you know, on the, on the building side, it's a long process to get zoning and permits and everything. It's also long on the rental side. But there's so many other factors that prevent the new rental housing construction, and uh, the government's policies are just not working. So what are the solutions here? I mean, this is this is going to have an impact, and, and I'm wondering, uh, I'd like to see some numbers, and I didn't see this when the minister made this announcement, uh, when Minister Millicent made this announcement uh, yesterday. Uh, any numbers to suggest this is a big problem and here's why we're doing this? I don't know if this is anecdotal information. I don't know if this is a one-off situation, because uh, I'm not hearing... Uh, an awful lot of people concerning and, and complaining about being uh, in, in a situation like this where they're being booted out with no compensation. Is it widespread? Is it is it worthy of the government actually addressing this with a, a specific policy? It's not widespread because, as I say, it doesn't apply to the high-rise stock. It only applies to sort of homes and condos. And there again, the 
most of the landlords, they have tenants and they want to maintain the tenants and they plan to keep the property as rental. But if you've got a rental property, say, in London and your son or daughter wants to go and study there, then you may want to have them live in your property rather than in another property. It's sure. sort of small uh, sector of the, uh, <coughs> of the industry that's affected. So it's not a widespread problem. It's not a widespread issue. It's mostly anecdotal from what we've heard. You know, yes, it happens, but uh, the majority of landlords just want to continue renting out their property. Now, if you are selling, the new landlord may want to, the new person buying the property may want to live in it. So in that case, there would also be an eviction. But again, landlords are not out to sell all their properties. It's only if they have some bad experiences and decide they want to get out of this industry. Everything bad that happens to a landlord ultimately gets reflected on the tenants. It all works down to the tenants, whether it's increased costs, less supply. You can't do anything bad to the landlord without having a bad effect on the tenant. What about renovations? Let's talk a little bit about that, because I know the minister talked a little briefly about that yesterday. Uh, because obviously one of the things that the government also is moving towards right now, of course, are, are trying to control rent increases. Uh, they're capped at 1.8% next year, unless the landlord applies for housing authorities for some assistance. What, what sort of things would they be able to argue that would uh, indicate that, yeah, they can be, go beyond that 1.8%? Well, that's for major capital expenditure. And the housing stock in Ontario, as we all know, is sort of 40, 50, 60 years old. So there are elevators that need to be modernized. There are uh, balconies that need to be repaired. There are underground parking garages that need to be repaired. When a landlord has to make that type of major capital expenditure, then he can apply for an above-guideline increase. And again, that's not happening very widespread, but it does because a landlord needs to recover those costs. So, but that only makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to invest $100,000 to upgrade a number of, of units in a house, uh, the landlord's got to, at some point, I guess, attempt to get some of that money back. Yeah, and in a high-rise building, you, could, you might not be talking of, uh, you could be talking of, you know, a million, two million, three million dollars on sure. major uh, work. Um, so it has to be recovered out of rents. You know, the landlord owns a property, and the idea is to make a profit out of it. And uh, to do that and to keep up the buildings, the guideline isn't high enough. The re annual rent increase guideline isn't high enough to capture the increased operating costs. It's the age of the buildings. They're all coming up to an age when there is so much work to be done and so much investment needed. And, uh, you know, the money is just uh, difficult to find. Well, because rental properties are a totally different situation. I mean, I know, I know an awful lot of people are into condos right now, and uh, that seems to be, even downtown Hamilton, that seems to be a growing trend. Uh, but condos are a different animal because, I mean, you pay as a condo, uh, as a, a tenant in a condo, as an owner, uh, you pay a monthly fee, and there's supposed to be money set aside to do uh, improvements to, as things goes on, whether it's windows or any number of different things like that. But for rentals, if you're a landlord right now, Aaron, and uh, you're in an older building, let's talk about a high-rise for a second because that seems to be what's prevalent in this city especially. Uh, and you say, okay, we've got to replace the uh, the balconies. Those, they, you know, these things are 30, 40 years old, and they're not quite safe anymore. Where's the money going to come from, and how do they get the money back out of that investment? Uh, most of the time, the landlord is taking out a loan to cover that, and to repay the loan, he needs the above-guideline increase to have the cash flow to cover that. It's, it's the age of the building. It's the whole 
uh, you know, way the industry's been uh, put down over the last 30, 40 years, that's caused this. With the condos, it, they have a reserve fund, but if there's a shortfall in the reserve fund, they can do a special assessment. So a condo yeah, owner, yeah. if there's not enough money, could get a bill saying that, okay, your share is 5000 7000 whatever it is. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, that's a condo, and fortunately, or whatever way you want to look at it, most of the condos are newer than the rental housing stock. So they haven't got to the stage, or most of them haven't, where there's major work. Um, you know, in the next 20 years, you'll find that more and more of the condos built over the last 10, 20 years are going to get into the cycle of needing the major work. So uh, we'll have to see what happens then to those. Listen, for somebody who's who's in the business right now, what do we need to do? Uh, I, I mean, to try to improve stock. I, I'd like to see more high-rises built. Uh, the city of Hamilton, for the longest time, we saw hardly any at all. And um, those that are being constructed right now, for the most part, seem to be condos and not rental units right now. So, I mean, that's wonderful that housing stock is going up, but it's not really helping the rental market. How, how do we accelerate that? How do we get people motivated to start building like that? Well, the first thing is to reverse what they just did with the post-1991 exemption. They took that away, and that was in place as an incentive for people to build. When you build a new building, you need to get tenants in there quickly, and sometimes you'll set the rent a little bit lower for the first few years, and then, okay, as time goes by, we'll put it up to sort of a, a market level. So that exemption was there deliberately, and the government just said it's a loophole and just closed it without any discussion. We need some sort of exemption for new properties. We need, from the city, we need more of a fast track to get approvals. But we also need some sort of fairness in the uh, uh, <coughs> legislation so that landlords don't feel that they're, not in a, they're in an industry where they're uh, picked on. You go to the landlord-tenant board, and it's a very biased um, institution. It's very tenant-friendly, and it doesn't help the landlord. Landlords find that tenants can live four, five, six months without paying rent before they can evict them because the process is slow and cumbersome and helping the tenant. Those sort of things, there's a lot of minor little things that could be worked out, and those things in the long run will help more supply and then help tenants to be able to find the housing they need. If you don't have enough supply, tenants are always going to be squeezed. Well, I just wish the government would sit down and talk to people like yourself and other agencies uh, like this as well, because, I mean, you're the ones that invested the time and the money specifically into this. And uh, and if they want the industry to grow and they want the stock to grow, they're going to have to do something about that. Right, now, thanks, as always, for the time today. It's great talking with you again. We'll see how this uh, impacts us uh, in the days and weeks ahead. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Aaron Pathak, of course, president of Hamilton District Department Association. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, it should be obvious to everybody, this is a Labor Day weekend, the last long weekend of summer season anyway. And uh, both OPP and uh, Hamilton Police Services and Halton Regional, everybody in the uh, CHML listing area, uh, we'll be out in force uh, watching out what's going on on the roads. And by the way, out of the water, too. We'll talk about that with our next guest. Klaus Wagner, of course, uh, Constable Klaus Wagner, traffic specialist with Hamilton Police Services, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing today, Klaus? It's the most wonderful time. Is, is that copyrighted? Uh, no, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, no, it's, it's yours now. You own it. <laughs> 
And and one of the better versions I've heard. Congratulations oh. on that. Nope, I, I used to have to hold the microphone for this thing. <laughs> um, listen, let me ask you something. You've been doing this for quite a long time. Of course, you lecture up at the police college in Aylmer. Uh, you've talked about this for a number of years, and you've been you know, trying to enforce the rules of the road. Uh, I, let me get into the psychology of this for a second. I'm not trying to be flippant here because I really, truly think there's something going on here. What is it about long weekends that makes people behind the wheel get more dumb? They, I mean, they do things. I, I mean, you see this stuff all the time, I know, but it just seems to be magnified on long weekends. You know what? Um, there's that commercial on TV right now with Captain Obvious, and they're yeah. in a the traffic jam, <laughs> and, you know, they're all frustrated. You know it's going to be busy on the highways. You, should, you know, it goes back to what I always say. You've got to take that into account. You know, is it leaving earlier or just, you know, it's like going to the grocery store on a Saturday and don't understand why you have to stand in line. You have to expect these things and maybe get in the mental frame right there that you won't let the little traffic jams or the person that, you know, is impatient upset you enough where now you do something to get back at them or you cause some, you know, someone else to get frustrated that you're driving them. So it's really getting, like you said, into that mindset where it's a long weekend. The roads are going to be busy. I need more time. There's going to be more people on the roads, more people impatient, leaving the last second shopping to go get the school bags or whatever it is. It's, time is going to be busier. But there's, there's something about this. And, you know, we talk about road rage incidents and some of the terrible things that you see on some of the, you know, the television news, et cetera, where there's actually physical violence, and, and that's despicable action. But there are many, many more cases of it where people just stay in the car or the vehicle behind the wheel and, and do something stupid. I'll give you an example. I'm glad you asked. Uh, this morning, coming down to the work here at, at about uh, 4, 15 in the morning, Usually a trip is down golf links, then I go down at that little stretch of the link, and then down the 403, and bingo, bango, I'm here at work. Well, that ramp was closed today. I guess they were doing some resurfacing there. You know, they've been doing that most of the summer down around there. So I had to go, instead of down the ramp, uh, I deked over onto Russo, which takes you all the way over to, to Wilson Street, and then you go down the Ancaster Hill. Okay, it's about another 15 minutes to the drive, but yeah. okay, that's the way it is. I've got some clown behind me who's in a, a red Ford Tundra pickup truck, uh, and he's tailgating me all the way down there. Like, he wants me to go faster. The speed limit is 60. I'm not doing 80 because you're ticked off. But yeah. that's what he – and as soon as we got down toward the bottom of the Ancaster Hill there, he cuts right out. And on a two, There's no par passing on this thing. Cuts right out, zooms up there, and starts doing 80 down the street. I wish, I wish there was somebody there to have caught him doing stuff yeah. like that. That's dangerous driving. Yeah, and, that, and we got that – all the time from people, and that's what it is, you know. And, you know, and it's unfortunate. You know, we can't be everywhere. We try, and you know, and you know, the other side. You've probably been at parties where people are saying, you know, why is the, why is the policeman worried about you know this stop sign in my neighborhood? You know, isn't there bigger problems? You know, until you get the ticket, you know, that's the that's the hardest part of this job. Is you know, we can never make everybody happy, but it's like you said, like where does he want you to go? I mean, I have the same thing on my days off. People tailgate me, and there's. You know, because I leave a bit of a, a bigger gap, maybe I leave the three-second rule between me and the car in front of me, and they see that, that, well, you could be up two car lengths. Why aren't you right out on the bumper of the other car? That's going to make all the difference to them, and they, and they get like that. Yeah, but I get to something. Uh, for somebody like yourself, and I've known guys like you, and they've been doing this for years, uh, I know an awful lot of uh, lawyers in town, too, and they'll tell you that if you rear-end somebody uh, because you're too close, it's your fault. 100%, yeah. You're going to get charged, right? And then you're going to have some huge legal bills. That The, the reason they always say three car lengths is so that doesn't happen. It's it's really for your own good. It's not it's not just a matter of it is safety, but obviously it's, it's going to save you an awful lot of money too because yeah. if you ding somebody, following too close is a charge, isn't it? 
Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's like anything because, you know, the anxiety it causes you with that car right on your back bumper. Because, you know, first of all, it's frustrating because you're thinking, where do you want me to go? So you get frustrated. Plus, you're in the back of your head, you're thinking, if I got to stop quickly, you're right in my rear end. Yeah. Yeah. And even though it's the other guy's fault, it's annoying to go through insurances, to get a car fixed. All those different things is all part of it. Even when we teach pursuit driving to officers, we talk about sometimes just backing off, and that gives the suspect they start to drive a little bit better because they're not feeling pressured. It's all part of that mindset, like you said, from the beginning. Now, I know that you usually don't talk numbers with us, but when you get into long weekends like this, it just seems as if there are more units on the road uh, keeping an eye on things. Is there usually an extra compliment out? Um, yeah, like this, like tonight and tomorrow and Sunday, we have um, extra ride programs going to be going out there uh, that we put out. Um, we have, uh, you know, officers dedicated to to looking for this weekend. It's going to be distracted driving is going to be our big one because it's as we've talked a hundred times. It's people still are just not getting it that. You know, you can say all you want. You think you're a bit, you, you can drive while you're looking at your phone. You can't. It's been proven. You, you don't stay in your lane, and you cause those little problems that you're saying. And, and impaired driving, Bill, and I was going to hopefully give you one second to mention, I'm very disappointed this week. We've had 12 impaired drivers this week. Twelve. That is a lot of impaired drivers this week. You know, you know, there's kids out there, and these aren't all at nighttime. These are, you know, late afternoons. These are people, you know, on vacation that are maybe having a few drinks at, at someone's friend at a pool party and then getting behind their wheel of their car when there's, you know, bumper-to-bumper traffic and they're causing collisions. And So it's it's a little bit, for me, is disappointing because, you, as you say, I'm out there all the time, and it's big money, like you said. I mean, you're looking at $25,000. You get impaired driving charge between legal fees, your insurance, I mean, kids don't even don't even get me started. Anybody under twenty years old, you're looking at sometimes a one thousand dollar a month insurance bill if you get done for impaired driving. In, in a situation like that, Klaus, if there's something like that, maybe a, a, a rear ender, it might not even be major damage. But I mean, obviously, you know, you you get called into switch issue like that, or it could be any number of things. Maybe an officer sees somebody running through a stop sign or something like that. Do you check for impairment right off the bat? Well, not right off the bat, but it's one of the things you notice right away. Um, like I always say, it's not difficult. Um, if you know, it's one thing to have one beer, but if I always say to young officers when I'm teaching them about impaired driving, if you can smell that musty smell of of an alcoholic beverage, they've had more than one drink. It takes more than one drink to get that smell going. So you're, you know, and there's so many different, as you know, Bill, there's so many different things legislated, you know, under 22 years old, you can't have to have zero BAC while you're behind the wheel. You know, we have between the 50 and 80 law that you can get a, a warrant, a three-day license suspension. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of different things out there that we're looking. So it is one of the things that we look for right away. And, and we're lucky. A lot of people notice it. And it's even better when the other driver says, I think there's something wrong with this guy. It, it, it's even better evidence for an officer when an average person can say, this person doesn't look like a normal person to me. Uh, but, you know, that's the oddity about this whole thing, too, because the people that do have two or three or four, sadly, sometimes more than that, uh, they don't think they smell. They don't think there's anything on their breath. You know, they get, they put a mint in there or something. It, it's like people that smoke. They think, well, you know, this, you can you can tell somebody who smokes after they've just had a cigarette because they smell of tobacco smoke. Uh, and somebody who's had three or four drinks smells of alcohol. You can't you can't mask that really. No, and remember, and and the biggest thing nowadays, it's remember alcohol. 
for the alcohol testing program is one and a half ounces of spirit, five ounces of wine, 12 ounces of beer. Well, who really, how many people anymore drink a bottle of beer? You know, it's usually a, you know, it's usually a draft. So it's sometimes 20 ounces or it's a mixed drink or it's the, you know, it's the, uh, the house wine at nine ounces. So it's a lot of times you're thinking you've only had two drinks. You've actually had four and four will get you close to that 50 level. If for some people it will get you to 50, other people it might take a little bit, might take one more, but it's it's going to get you there. And a three-day suspension is on your license. You gotta you gotta get uh, you know pay a renewal fee. So you're looking at almost $200 for that. Your insurance company might see it. If you get another one within five years, you got to take an alcohol treatment program to get your license back, and that's not for seven days. It's a lot of consequences. Do you get these debates and these arguments from people that you do stop that says, "Hey, I only had one beer." And then you find out it's one of those big twenty-ounce kegs that you can buy in some of the in the some of the pubs and some of the roadhouses. Yeah, I guess technically, according to the menu, that's one beer, but that's not how you guys measure it. No, exactly. That's why I'm saying it's twelve ounces, and you know those tall cans, and and you know, like you know, when I do my presentations to the public about drinking driving, I say to them, I try to explain to them an average. You know how it, someone gets up to the levels that we catch because you know most people that we 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 arrest and charge for impaired driving are over the legal limit of 80. They're blowing two times the legal limit on average month in month out bill. It's since 1990. I've run the numbers and when I spoke at conferences in Colorado and New York State and Michigan, their breath techs come up to me and say our numbers are bang on too. It's just something about it. We're not we're not talking about usually about the person that had one or two. We're talking about the person who thinks they only had one or two because they forgot that you know, that they've had seven. Yet with that concern, uh, texting and driving, in other words, distracted driving, actually outnumbers that now. That's that's rather frightening. Yeah, exactly, because everybody's doing it. You know, we all have stories. I mean, we get phone calls here at least five, six a day about someone complaining they've taken a picture of the person's license plate. Because, again, it's not the person at the stoplight. Even though it's illegal to be on your phone at the stoplight, yes, like I'm a realist. You know how I talk, Bill. I'm a realist. You know, you're still going to get a ticket, but you're stopped. But it's the ones that, that think they can drive with their head down for half a block or a block with their head down, and they think they're keeping the car straight in the lane. They're not. They keep swerving over. They're almost hitting somebody. And, again, that causes that frustration where now that person, like you said, road rage gives them the finger or yells and screams at him, and that person yells and screams back. I mean, I know there's people out there that have told me that they have, like, a ping-pong paddle with a, a picture of a, uh, a no phone slash through it, and, and they point that at somebody that they see on their cell phone, and they get you know the finger back at them. Well, why are you giving the person the finger back who's saying to you, you know, you're breaking the law? Don't do that. It's dangerous for all of us. But you've told us when you've been in studio talking about some of these circumstances, and you've relayed some of the stories, and and for people that are doing this and saying, well, the big the road's straight ahead, I can do this, I'm not going to be uh, bothering anybody. First of all, your your points bang on. You don't go straight when you're texting or when you're reading text or, and, uh, because you're not paying attention. You do drift. I, you may not think you are, but I, can, I see it happening all the time. And what, and what hand are you steering with usually, Bill? They're weak hand. Yeah. They're weak hand. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and, but the story that I, that, that I still remember you told us, was a couple of years ago now, was you find that invariably if somebody honks at them or something, or you, they overcorrect. Which, which only actually puts them in a more precarious position because now all of a sudden they have run the risk of losing control of the car. Exactly. And it's not just the other cars. As I always say, it's all road users. It could be a bicycle on the bicycle lane. It could be a, it could be a young child that's, that's at a crosswalk and thinks that they have, you know, they see the walk symbol and they just walk out. They don't look down the road to see if a car is stopping and they just step out in front. There's so many other things out there, so many other things. Construction, as you said, 
there's so many more other things on the road. And that's always the one, biggest one, the ones I give tickets to when I, I give tickets to people. They're in the middle of a turn. They're trying to do a left-hand turn, which is the most dangerous turn. We get the most collisions at left-hand turns. And they're trying to text while they're doing that left-hand turn. You know, even more dangerous. What what will officers be looking for? Is this, is, is the zero tolerance? Is that what you, the attitude you take going into a weekend like this? For the long for yeah, for the long week enforcement. I mean, officers always have the discretion, you know, uh, to to give someone a stern warning. You know, as my as my old coach officer thirty years told me, it's either a lecture or a ticket. Don't give them both. You know, that's not not with people. So, but it's it's pretty much zero tolerance on the line because we want we want the road safe. Because like you just said, there's more people out there. You know, uh, there's you know. We want, you know, we don't want to have to be banging on somebody's door at two o'clock in the morning and saying a loved one has been has been fatally injured in a in a motor vehicle collision because of someone speeding, drinking, texting. So you talk about this. Uh, your, your compatriot Carrie Schmidt from the OPP, I know, has done a number of radio interviews and television interviews over the last twenty four hours. Uh, we talk about this. I mean, there are commercials on radio and television uh, about this. I even see pop ups on social media. Uh, about driving and public safety and, and no you know no texting yet it always seems to increase on on long weekends uh, which got to be awfully frustrating for for you uh, out on the road yeah cuz you know like you said we're all like every service is putting a message out there and 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 Carrie's a good friend of mine and we're talking about it all the time and like I said I don't know what it is it's, like I said at the beginning of the conversation is it just people don't take that extra time and say, I, I need more time to get where I'm going today because I know it's going to be busy. The, you know, the, the beautiful things that are all happening in our city and the rib fest, you know, you know it's going to be packed. You know it's going to be hard finding a parking spot. You've you got to part, make that part of your day. Look, we've got to leave now because, you know, so we don't get frustrated later. I really believe that. Time is a huge thing. I think that causes a lot of people why they do things that they do. The other thing about this, too, I'm glad you brought up the festivals because this is always a busy, long weekend. Uh, obviously, the football game will be Sunday, but, I mean, you got Super Crawl. you got a bunch of things that are happening right now. Uh, and we had this happen in the city a couple of weeks ago, Klaus, and a number of people uh, contacted us here, and they got all upset about uh, bylaw enforcement and police services and say, oh, come on, cut us some slack. Uh, the rules are the rules, unless there's a, a, a statement otherwise – Parking regulations are still in place, and if you break the rules, you're going to get ticketed. Uh, same thing with drinking and driving. I mean, we want everybody to go to Super Crawl and have a great time, but if you're going to have a couple of pubs at the at some of the establishments there, uh, driving and drinking is still illegal. I don't care if it's a festival or not, and I, I, that's that's obviously one of the things that that we I think we need to drive home here. Yeah, and and and. The big one now too is people, even though uh, it hasn't taken effect yet with uh, with the government about uh, marijuana and uh, where they can do things it is illegal if we catch you you know driving with uh, and you're impaired by that marijuana or whatever so people need to understand that we can test for that we you know we ha- we're up to 60 already this year in the city for us here in Hamilton and I know the OPP or Hyder York Toronto if that's where the people head out to they their their numbers are even bigger uh, and the you know the conviction rate is very high because the program works, uh, and uh, they need to understand that. That uh, you know we have all kinds of tools in our tool belt now, and we're using them successfully. And again, it goes back to that driver's license suspension. So if you get caught today, think about it. You get caught today, uh, drinking and driving. You've lost your you lost your car and your license. You know the car for seven days, your license for ninety. So if that's the only car you have in the family, there goes whatever you've planned out for this weekend out the door. It's gone. I had somebody last year that got really ticked off, and that's what I was going to ask you about ride programs. They will be in effect. They were in effect all year long. 
Yeah, we do them. Yeah, we do them twenty four seven every day, three hundred sixty five days a year. But we're going to be stepping them up over the weekend again. And it's not just at nighttime. It's like I said during the day because you know there are people that go to the festivals and they should they enjoy themselves. But you know, make those arrangements that if you're going to have a few, and uh, you know, if if you're having it, make sure your spouse is driving. It's amazing how many times we pull over couples where the person driving is the one that's had a few drinks and the other person has, and, and for some reason they're not driving the car. And, uh, you know, again, like I said, there goes the car and the, and the person's license for the weekend over something that could have been very easily rectified by making a decision before you leave the house that, okay, I'm going to have a few today, you're driving. You know, you have to you have to play like that. You have to be a team. Well, the guy I was talking about from a year ago was complaining because that was just after a Super Bowl and he, he got uh, nailed. I guess he had a couple of uh, beers at, uh, at one of the beer gardens there. And he says, ah, you know, it's just a cash grab by the cops. And I said, only for the people that are dumb enough to break the law. I mean, if you get stopped and you weren't intoxicated, there's nothing wrong. That There's no problem. Yeah, it would, nothing would have happened. It would they're have they're the ones that way. break the law, but they blame you for it. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've never had anybody in front of me on the uh, on the breathalyzer, as people call it, that has not looked at me and said, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> it wasn't me that was at the bar buying you the, the drinks. Anyway, I'd love to to talk to you on Tuesday and say, hey, guess what? Everything was cool. Everybody obeyed the law. And that's uh, what I'm hoping to. Yeah, and well, maybe maybe we can reduce those numbers, if nothing else. Uh, thanks for being out there to you and, and the rest of them out on Police Services, Klaus, and to you and Carrie and everybody else with the OPP and Hamilton Police Services. Uh, keeping us safe. It's going to be a fun weekend. Apparently the weather's going to be great. There's lots going on. Uh, we just want people to be a little smarter. Let's hope so. And everybody have a great, enjoy this city, enjoy the surrounding. We have a lot of great things in our in our wonderful city of Hamilton. Thanks so much, Klaus. Good talking with you again. All the best. Klaus Wagner, of course, a traffic specialist with Hamilton Police Services. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, according to the Washington Examiner, uh, Donald Trump is planning a second trip down to the Houston area, possibly into Louisiana, too, where, uh, of course, Hurricane uh, Harvey made landfall uh, for a second time just a couple of days ago. Uh, at the same time, his uh, legal folks have met with uh, Robert Mueller, who is the special counsel, of course, investigating uh, potential uh, charges against uh, those in the Trump administration. Uh, they're talking about the Russian involvement. They're talking about obstruction of justice, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Trump's lawyers uh, have put forth their arguments uh, to Mueller, which Fox News and Trump are now reporting as fact. Uh, I don't know that that's been determined yet, but uh, that's, I guess, what you call fake news, isn't it? George Breckenridge, retired political science professor at McMaster University, joins us to try to make some sense of this. How are you doing this morning, George? Well, I'm fine, Bill. Uh, not unusual. As a matter of fact, I would suggest expected that when natural tragedies like this occur yeah. uh, with uh, the hurricane and, of course, the, the resulting damage, the horrific damage that we've watched over the last number of days, yeah. that at some point the president does show up. Uh, George W. Bush took a, a little too long to get down to Katrina, yeah. uh, and that's all chronicled now with, hey, Brown, are you doing a great job? Uh, <laughs> uh, that kind of came back to bite him. Yeah. Uh, it's happened before, but uh, the way Trump handled it this week was, uh, well, Amazing, I guess is one way of putting it. Uh, it just, it just. Well, you tell me your impression of what you watched as as he went down there. Well, I mean, the contrast is between uh, Trump's performance when I, two or three days ago, and Vice President Pence, who went, I think, yesterday, and Pence was doing what all the presidents have done. I mean, George W. Bush was a bit late in getting around to it, but but Obama, Clinton, Reagan, everybody, they you know they they go there and they hug the people, you know, the poor people in distress, 
and they do a little symbolic, you know, clearing up. Yeah, and, yeah Pence was yeah, down there with his, he was, he, Pence Don't was you, there with, he had his blue jeans on and his gloves, and he was well, actually, exactly. yeah, 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 he's just moving some twigs around. But, I mean, he's down there, and he's, it's a show. It's, 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 it's. Well, sure it is, but, I mean, you know, the, the president, again, is, is the head of state, and people expect, particularly, you know, some people have called him the mourner-in-chief. He's also the comforter-in-chief in these kind of situations. And that's what presidents, certainly since uh, Carter, have done. And uh, and Luke, quite natural in doing it, you know, hugging people and this sort of thing. And that's what Pence was doing. Trump didn't do it, didn't really do any of that. And and so while the, maybe the criticism is a little unfair, even in terms of the way they dressed going down there, um, that's probably a bit unfair, but it, it shows his inability to be authentic and natural and show empathy in these kind of situations. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, it, it started, I know there's been a big to-do about, uh, about his wife wearing the stilettos, uh, yeah. on, uh, but that was on the way down. But she, yeah. had, she had running shoes on by the time well, they got I, off I there. I don't want to be critical of her. She's in a very difficult situation. But, but, uh, but it, 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 and it, you see, that's, I think in many ways, the Charlottesville, his response to the Charlottesville thing really was a breaking point in a lot of ways in terms of showing clearly that he has no moral authority at all. Well, and, 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 and then the, the, you know, the pardoning of Joe Apio and just a really nasty, vicious bigot. And, and you know, so it all plays into this notion that he's not, um, you know, he doesn't have a, a good moral sense. Um, and he's led, he's led a very sheltered life. You know, he really has. He's, you know, all his life in New York City, most of it holed up in Trump Tower doing his deals and wheeling and dealing and that sort of thing. He, he hasn't, there was always something a bit phony about his ability. You know, he's presenting himself as the champion of the ordinary guy. He's not an ordinary guy. He never has been. And it shows in these kind of situations that he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the instinct or the kind of moral sense to know when to, um, what to say and and how to be in these kind of situations. Well, that was that was part of the problem. I think a lot of people had George when he was down there. Uh, it's what he said and the way in which he said yeah, it. That's right. That's uh, I that. mean, you're you're going down there. People are are going through the worst tragedy in their lives. Yeah. Uh, and he's saying, "What a great crowd! I always draw great crowds. This yeah. is fabulous. <laughs> it's all right. about. It's always all about him." Yeah, I mean, and, and did it, nobody ever seemed to clue into the fact that, Mr. President, the reason there's a large number of people there is because they've lost their homes. There's nowhere for them to I go. Know, I know. I That's know. why they're there, Mr. President, not because they wanted to see you. It's because they're now homeless. There was no mention of, of the, the people who have been killed, of the fatalities, no, of no, those that no. have been disenfranchised. That's I mean, true. none of this stuff. I mean, he just, those are, I, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but those are the talking points that you expect your leader to to touch on, and absolutely. he didn't touch on any of that stuff. No, that's right. It's become absolutely so. Now, he's going tomorrow again, so he gets a, re- he gets a do-over. Yeah, it's a redux, let's, let's yeah. See. But I, I just don't think he has the instinct or the feel for, the, it doesn't come, it doesn't, not only doesn't come naturally to him, the Bushies were a little bit stiff, but I mean, the people understood that, but their heart was in the right place. Uh, but Carter and uh, Reagan and Clinton and Obama were great at it. They were really good at it. And uh, saying the right thing and hugging people and, and really coming across sincerely. He doesn't have that instinct. So we'll see what he does tomorrow. And uh, But I think it plays into this notion that he's not the only time he's being authentic, you know, really coming across as authentic is when he's doing these rallies and, you know, ranting and raving and carrying on. So it, it, I think it really has, has diminished his 
standing. There are also signs of some crumbling among his people who voted for him, who who just don't. He just, he just isn't presidential. It isn't what they expect. What bothers me here are the contradictions, yeah. and and how his his base just by no matter what he says doesn't matter what he says, they just say well that's that, that's our guy so we believe him right yeah, now I mean the story the story in some of the headline papers is today is that he's pressuring Congress for money for relief for yeah, for yeah. what happened down there with Harvey yeah what they don't talk about in those same papers or on Fox or any of these others is that Trump himself canceled the programs that would have allowed that funding. Yeah, when he, in his right. budget cuts, he slashed and eliminated those programs. Now he's turning around to the Senate and to, and to the Congress and saying, you got to help these people. Well, he's the right. one that put them in the precarious position by eliminating the funding that was already available. Well, that's right. They, they cut FEMA funding, at least the budget proposal was to cut FEMA funding substantially. Now, that obviously, they can't, they're not going to do that. No, it's, Congress doesn't need any pressure to, to rush to fund these sort of things. Even the most conservative Republicans of the big budget hawks recognize that they have to, there's going to be billions and billions of dollars poured into Texas and Louisiana. And so Trump doesn't need to do anything about that. But, um, but it, it really kind of screws up a lot of other things in the Congress, but that's another story. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, so much of it is thoughtless in terms of, you know, in terms of the impact of some of these things they're proposing. Yeah. Well, we, I mentioned some months ago, and I think we're seeing the the, the personification of this. So there are two Trumps. There's there's you know there's Twitter Trump, uh, and and there's teleprompter Trump. And when he's on teleprompter, in other words, he's reading the talking points yeah. somebody else has given him. Uh, you know, he's he starts to hit some of those points. You're right. The tweets that he made when he got back after being there. Yeah covered all those points, but clearly that's because of all the criticism we'd received for what he didn't say while he was down there. Yeah, so right. they're obviously saying, Mr. President, here, you got to tweet this, you got to say this, and so, but it comes out 24 hours later, not unlike his attempted uh, tri- rationalization for what happened in Charlottesville. That, that was, like, what, two days later? Well, that's right. But then he went off track on that one, too. Yeah, when he's reading from a teleprompter, which he's been told to do, I mean, he doesn't do it very well. He's not very good at it. He's, he looks boring. He looks inauthentic. Where he looks authentic are not, not the tweets, for one thing, but also in these rallies that he keeps doing, you know, and his response to that sort of thing. That's the authentic Trump. And people see, I think, you can see the contrast between the, you know, the sort of presidential Trump when he's reading off the teleprompter and switching his head from side to side. It doesn't, he's not very good at doing it. Um, and, uh, and, and the authentic Trump, and people are not so sure they like the authentic Trump so much. The uh, the other element I wanted to touch base with you on this, is, of course, is the ongoing investigation with uh, the special prosecutor. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, Trump's lawyers, I guess, are, are before uh, Mr. Mueller and his uh, his group uh, today. It's, it's interesting how some in the uh, alt-right media are saying, well, you know, these guys, they just go from one thing to another, criticizing them, and now they're back to the FBI. The, the FBI investigation never stopped. No. Uh, it, it might have gone on to page two in all the newspapers because of some of the other things, Charlottesville right. and others. Right. But Mueller's been working on this diligently from day oh, day one on absolutely. this ever since he was appointed to this position. And sure. and this is just part of the natural process of this. And th- there's a couple of things about this that I find interesting. Uh, Trump Jr.'s uh, assertion, of course, that this was uh, to do with adoptions, yeah. uh, <laughs> which he still maintained. He first uh, he said that, then he denied it. And now, he, of course, he's, he's back onto that line of thought. Uh, but Paul Manafort, who worked extensively in the campaign, yeah. uh, and they've uncovered some of his emails, which seem to lean very, very strongly towards uh, donations to the campaign yeah, yeah, from yeah. foreign sources. 
Well, that's what that's apparently a lot of what Manafort did. That's how he made his money by being an, being an intermediary with a lot of pretty unsavory unsavory people around the world. And so he, yeah, there seems to be evidence that that uh, he was looking for uh, campaign money, which apparently he had done with other countries before. But that, but that was before he became, um, you know, uh, head of the of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's that, and and uh, the, the whole business about Michael Cohen, who is Trump's personal lawyer and very close to Trump for a long time, you know, the other son, this sort of thing, all the maneuvering around trying to get uh, official support, meaning Putin's support, for Trump Tower in Moscow, you know, and that was going on. They were they were pursuing that, and Trump had signed a letter of intent while he was campaigning for the nomination. So, you know, so the the linkage between, you know, and, and Trump has always said, you know, I had nothing to do with Russia. I have no deal. I don't know anybody in Russia, all of this kind of stuff. And yet, so the evidence is gradually, this is like a pincer movement. The evidence is coming out. Uh, it's, none of it is decisive yet, but it's coming out from a variety of different sources, leaking from these different inquiries that are going on. Well, I mean, the, your people are trying to connect the dots here, and, and one of the concerns, and, and of course, I don't know if we're ever going to get proof on this until we can finally see some of his financial records, but yeah. is that uh, the, he was essentially dry and uh, could not find, the banks were not loaning him a whole lot of money yeah. here, yeah. and all of a sudden he got money. And, and the contention a lot of people have said is, well, he went to Russia and, and got the money. Now, they can't prove that yet. Uh, speaking of money, let's segue very quickly into that. Uh, again, I guess as, as part of the damage control here to try to bolden his image, uh, Trump uh, went on Twitter yesterday and said that he was going to pledge a million dollars towards the relief help yeah. for uh, yeah. for Hurricane Harvey, which I, I find interesting. Uh, you may remember, George, that uh, he made the same promise uh, that he was going to pledge a million dollars for a Hurricane Sandy yeah. relief. Uh, nobody's seen a nickel of that yet. No, I mean, well, he has a he has a very strange history in terms of that, in terms of charitable donations, because it, it was discovered that um, he was, you know, he set up this thing called the Trump Foundation, and he was accepting most of the money in the Trump Foundation was coming from other people, and yet he was donating it in his name. It wasn't his money at all. So he has a very strange uh, record in terms of actually giving any money, you know, his own money to to any kind of charitable thing. So the, the press are going to be on this one very closely. To, to see whether there is actual proof that it is actually his own money. There's so much shifting around the money in these kind of areas that uh, it may be difficult to prove, but he has a very bad track record in that regard. What about time frames here? Uh, as I say, Trump's lawyers are, are in front of uh, Mueller right now talking yeah. about uh, what can be allowed and what's not going to be allowed, who's going to testify, etc. Yeah. But we're hearing rumors that uh, that Mueller may well be close to the point of actually laying charges, not against Trump. We don't know who at, at this stage right now. But it, apparently, you know, the old adage, where there's smoke, there's fire, apparently he's found smoke, and we just don't know what it is yet. Well, well, the grand jury, of course, has been going, going on. There's yeah. very little leaked from that. You know, they, they, that's, that's been very close, which is almost always the case with grand juries. And so you don't know how far the whole thing has got. So we're getting leaks of, of documents that, that they got or witnesses that went before them some weeks ago. You know, so there's a, there's a big time lag there in the, in the information coming out. So it's difficult to know. Um, you certainly got a very high-powered selection of, of lawyers and experienced lawyers and investigators uh, working for him. You know, so he's, he's going flat out. 
And uh, clearly he's burrowing deeply into the financial doings, not only of people like Manafort, but also probably of Trump himself. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure, I mean, the the New York bankers stopped giving Trump money ages ago after all his bankruptcies and stuff like that. So he has had had to find money. And the the Kushners are in the same situation elsewhere. And one of the big sources of money in recent years has been these oligarchs and and banks which are controlled uh, more or less directly or indirectly by Putin. And so I'm sure the the basic reason why he's been unwill he's been so soft on Putin and so unwilling to say anything negative about Putin or Russia is because he has had extensive dealings with them. And uh, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to mess that up. In fact, he's probably looking to doing a lot more deals when he gets out of the White House. So I think that's that seems to be he simply sees Russia as a, a good place to do business. One of the more contentious points that I guess the lawyers are arguing today, uh, George, is, is obstruction of justice allegations. Yeah. Uh, Trump's lawyers simply say he's the president and he can do what he wants, yeah. uh, which is basically Trump's uh, attitude towards just about everything. Uh, and, and by the way, the Supreme Court has ruled, and so some some uh, other courts have also ruled uh, vis-a-vis his immigration policies and, and uh, travel bans and things of that nature, that no, he can't do whatever he wants whenever he wants. Uh, so this one obviously is going to end up before somebody. I don't know if it's going to be a, a circuit court judge or all the way to the top or something, but there's going to have to be an official ruling on this at some point. Well, I mean, it's part of the of the obstruction of justice idea. I mean, there are various aspects of that. There there are various examples of where he in, at least inquired, you know, whether a case could be dropped, not only of Comey but also of the Justice Department, and also inquired about it in, in relation to Joe Arpaio. You know, he inquired whether they could somehow drop the case before it went to court. So his willingness to kind of interfere in the judicial process. Um, uh, for, you know, for friends of his, really, what it amounts to. Um, There's several examples of that. So it's it's all potentially making a case for obstruction of justice. Now, he he, he certainly has the, the, the power to fire Comey, but if he did it for corrupt reasons like obstructing justice, then that's a very different kind of matter. Yeah, it might have, that something like that might end up in the, in, uh, before the Supreme Court, a definitive definition of that. But it, it's part of the ongoing, it's one, one strand, or several strands actually, in terms of, uh, um, um, you know, interference that are part of the general investigation. And of course the investigation is going on not only by Mueller, but also by the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee and the House Judiciary, the Senate Judiciary Committee. So there are a lot of investigations going on. And it can, in addition to that, the other interesting information was that Mueller's been coordinating with Eric Schneiderman, who is the New York, you know, the, the pit bull of New York <laughs> Attorney General. And, and uh, so since Trump is a resident of New York and most a lot of the stuff is done in New York, it, it also gives him the opportunity to get in on the act as well. It's uh, going to get an awful more, more interesting. Everybody reconvenes yeah, right after Labor Day. Absolutely, yeah, it's fascinating. I think he's, he's increasingly isolated in a lot of ways. I think the business community has, you know, is shunning him, you know, and uh, the, there are signs that some of his support is kind of crumbling a bit around the edges. And um, he, and he's apparently very unhappy with the way General Kelly is, you know, is limiting 
uh, access to the to the Oval Office and stuff like that. Well, they still haven't taken the phone away from when we were the tweeters. Anyway, yeah. uh, we got to wrap it up. George, okay. thanks as always. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Right. Okay. Thanks, Bob. George Breckenridge, yeah. of course, uh, political science professor uh, emeritus at uh, McMaster. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.